Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Larissa here with a very special thank you episode for all our listeners for helping us get to episode 100. Today, we're bringing you a very special guest named Dr. Ellen Vora. I first heard Ellen on a podcast back in March and immediately reached out to her because she was speaking our language. Then she told me she was taking some time off for herself for the summer to look after herself. Clearly, she had what we were looking for. We just had to know more. Ellen Bora is a board-certified psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher, and she is the author of the best-selling book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root. I'm going to share some of my favorite thoughts with you from her, and you'll get a glimpse into some of the awesomeness we are in for today. Quote, Anxiety is often caused by a blood sugar issue. If you're familiar with the experience of being hangry, then you probably also get anxious, which means you get anxious when your blood sugar is low. Quote, while no addiction is easier to manage than any other, food is uniquely challenging because abstaining from it entirely is not an option. We must interact with our drug multiple times a day, which makes it hard to establish recovery. Quote, When we navigate the nutrition landscape from a place of fearing food, even if this might result in us eating better foods, it has a net effect of increasing anxiety. We need to learn the art of eating well without feeling like we're depriving ourselves or afraid of getting fat. Quote, perfectionism is a coping strategy that attempts to claim your seat at the table. But it turns out that it only serves to paralyze you and you already inherently deserve a seat at the table, even if you're imperfect. Dr. Vora received her BA from Yale University and her MD from Columbia University. In her book, Anatomy of Anxiety, she has a whole chapter on food for thought in which she shares her own personal story of discovering she had food addiction. Today, she shares her journey to recovery with food and how that's influenced her professional career today, namely in how she treats the whole person. Looking for places where states like anxiety and depression might be rooted in the body, whether it's less than ideal nutrition and an out-of-whack gut or poor sleep and breathing. In today's interview, Molly and I speak with her about her personal story, how food addiction plays a role in eating disorders, how we need to watch out for contributing to eating disorders by a food addiction treatment modality, the difference between true and false anxiety, why it's important to treat false anxiety first, the importance of a both-and approach in recovery, that multiple things can be true at the same time and that everybody has a right to their experience, regardless of what somebody else is experiencing. Why Ellen believes she can tolerate some of her addictive foods when she is in different countries and on different soil. 
Does gut permeability combined with opiate-like addictive foods create a landscape for higher levels of food addiction in North America? Why do we have such a hard time asking for help? Why living in an emotion-phobic culture can lead us to seek food rather than addressing our unmet needs? How advertisers prey on our fear response, which activates us into that unmet need scarcity mindset. How do we get quiet to determine our needs in a world full of noise and adverse advertising? How can we be radical and turn our lives into a life focused on ourselves, kind of like what you might experience in treatment? Can you be radically intentional in the life choices you make? And how do we find the middle in bringing the eating disorder world and the food addiction world together rather than remaining so far apart and offering opposing treatments? Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and allowing us to do what we love to do. Interview inspirational leaders that help you get closer to your truth. It has been an honor and a pleasure to have been with you on this journey so far, and we can't wait to see where the next 100 episodes take us. As Vera says, the power is yours. Enjoy the show. All right. We are so excited to have Dr. Ellen Vora on the show today. So thank you so much for being here with us. I am so excited to be here with you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Well, we usually kick off with, you know, having our guests share a little bit about their personal story and you have a personal story of food addiction. So can you kind of explain to our listeners how that played into your recovery from binge eating disorder with us? What was your aha moment that it was the sugar processed food? And how has this personal journey affected your professional journey today? Yeah. And I will say, I never talked about this publicly. I I try not to bring myself into the room with patients. And so it wasn't until I wrote my book that it really felt vital that I bring this forward because I want to make sure like you have to step down from that lofty place on high where it's like, I'm telling you this from a place of clinical observation. A lot of what I'm doing is that, but this is near and dear to my heart, this issue. For me, it really started, it started the first year out of college. Maybe it even started late in college, but it really got to a fever pitch my first year in medical school. And I was binging. It was hellacious. I was really in a bad place and making constant trips to the grocery store, spending money I didn't have on boxes of donuts and all kinds of junk food. And then sitting in my med school dorm room, rejecting, saying no to any kind of invitations to dinner. I said no to a weekend away at a friend's house and like declining everything, shutting down my personal life so that I could stay in my room and have these miserable binging episodes. And then being so painfully bloated afterward, gaining a lot of weight, my joints hurt lost my period. Everything was popping, you know, all the screws were popping out of the machine in my body and I was miserable. And for me, the aha moment, it's, I I didn't at the time know about Brene Brown, but now that I do, thank goodness, I think she puts it so well. So I had some version of this aha moment where she's even just quoting somebody else talking about abstinence-based recoveries, where it's like living with a tiger in a cage in your living room And you know that if you opened up that cage, it would kill you, but you just live with it in the cage. And that works for something like alcohol, abstinence-based recovery. You stop drinking, not saying that's easier. 
but just saying that, you know, the solution there is to never open the cage. And part of what's so challenging with food addiction is that you have to open that cage minimum three times a day and interact with that tiger. And so what really shifted for me was when I started to realize it wasn't all foods that triggered addiction for me. And I started to narrow it down for me, for my body, it was particular foods that were behaving like drugs. And for me, that was gluten, dairy, sugar, and then anything that I would call like a Franken food, but the way processed foods seem to have some kind of flavor crystal sprinkled on them that hits the palate just so and sends you off to the races. Like the Pringles slogan, you can't have, bet you can't have just one. And it's like, no, we literally can't. The joke is on us. They are engineered to be hyperpalatable. And so that's when I realized that I cannot abstain from food, but I can MacGyver a version of abstinence where I'm abstaining from the drug-like foods. And for me, that was the crucial exit ramp. And then I started to have normalized eating and I started to re-attain the ability to experience satiety. And that was really what changed everything. How does that weave in then with, I mean, as a, as a psychiatrist, like how does that weave into how you interact then with your patients? Does it, does that play a role in creating a treatment plan or, you know, what ends up coming out in the room at all? Well, this is what's so spicy and fun about humanity, right? Is that at first I was like, oh, I've got the keys to the kingdom. I can support my patients with eating disorders. And, you know, I kind of was like, oh, I have this unorthodox hot take, which is that a lot of eating disorders, not all, I think you guys do an incredible job with this nuance, not all, but a lot of eating disorders have as their root food addiction. And this is certainly, you know, more apparently true with something like bulimia nervosa, but it's still can play a role in certain forms of anorexia nervosa and and all kinds of eating disorder, not otherwise specified. And so I would work with my patients with eating disorders and we would talk about what are their triggers? What are their drug-like foods? I identified one other common trigger, which was that in my patients who were vegetarian or vegan, nut butter seemed to be a trigger food, which it seemed to me almost like the body being like, though we need big time protein, help us out here and start eating the macadamia nut butter by the spoonful. And, and then I was supporting my patients and, and showing them this version of avoiding the drug-like foods. And it was this exit ramp for them from their binging behaviors. And then over time, I started to realize a pitfall built into this approach, which was that just as we were solving one eating disorder, I believe, and this sits really heavily with me, I was contributing to creating an entirely different eating disorder for some of my patients. And some of my patients really ran with this too far and ended up on the orthorexic side of this balance. And so they start to become obsessed with eating in the right way. And then they're declining dinner party invitations for an entirely new reason, because they want to stay home and eat the controlled food that they know doesn't trigger them in a controlled setting. And they're obsessively meal prepping. They're fearing food. They're feeling like their bodies are fragile. And this is not well-being either. So I had to really reckon with that. And it, it, it's helped me now at this point, I approach this with such a both and philosophy. And I do so much like, here's what we're going to do to help you exit from this vicious cycle that you're in. And, and we're always going to do this with an attitude of ease and a loose grip and attunement to your body and wiggle room for real life. 
And when you're in a moment where you can't eat in exactly the way that you know supports you not getting triggered, you're going to practice radical acceptance and drop into a way of reminding yourself, my body's not that fragile and I can handle this. I love that so much because we just got back from a week of observation at SunCloud Health in Chicago, which is, you know, this really unique holistic treatment center with Dr. Kim Dennis, and she treats both eating disorder and food addiction. And I certainly want to dive deeper into that conversation with you. But first, I, I just kind of want you to speak a little bit more about what you talk about in your book as the difference between true anxiety and false anxiety, because I think that's really important for individuals to understand that there's two different types. Yeah. In my opinion, there are. I mean, I was trained to think about anxiety according to the Bible of mental health, the DSM, and to categorize it as generalized anxiety disorder or PTSD or OCD or panic disorder with or without agoraphobia. And these diagnostic labels, they have some merit. They're helpful for standardizing diagnoses for the purpose of our clinical trials. They're helpful for gatekeeping certain treatments if your treatments are something that you need to gatekeep. So, you know, I'm I'm of a world where our interventions are invasive and have risks like our medications. So of course you would want to gatekeep that. You would want to say, this warrants a diagnosis of clinical anxiety and this does not. So you'd say, okay, we'd use medication here, but not over here. Or if this was panic disorder, you'd say, okay, maybe CBT is more appropriate. And so it's designed to steer management in a useful way. It just happens to be that the way I approach mental health, all of that steering is entirely useless for me because I'm not typically putting people on medication and I'm veering away from all of the different disciplines of therapy that I was trained in. And so basically the classification system that I found was more useful for steering management in a meaningful way in my practice was to divide anxiety into two types, what I call false anxiety, which is avoidable anxiety. It's based in the physical body and it relates to when something has tipped our physiology out of balance, created a stress response. And then that stress response is something that we subjectively experience as anxiety or even panic. And this is unnecessary suffering. So we can identify the root of it, address that, and walk away from all of these forms of anxiety. We can eliminate it. It's avoidable. Calling it false is not intended to invalidate the very real suffering. I personally, when I was eating gluten and on birth control, I was in a state that I would call false depression for many years. And it's not to invalidate the very real suffering. This was life-altering suffering. But the solution was a straightforward physical-based path out. True anxiety on the other hand, is what I would call purposeful anxiety. It's not something to pathologize. It's not something to suppress. It's not something that we can gluten-free or decaf coffee or discontinue birth control our way out of. It's our inner compass nudging us, asking us to slow down, to get still, pay attention. Usually it's pointing our our lens at something It's out of alignment in our lives where we need to course correct. So there's always a call to action baked into it. And if we can translate that anxious feeling into purposeful action, we don't feel so anxious anymore. Yeah. I think about, you know, when I start working with a client and a lot of times people come to me because they want to get off of like these activating foods, right? But sometimes they've come to me because they've had some period of, you know, 
food sobriety, whatever that means for them. And maybe they want to like level up or they have had, you know, a period of return to use, whatever it might be. And we talk a lot about what in your writings may be defined as false anxiety, where some of these, you know, foods or substances in general that we're putting into our body contribute to these things. And so that when we remove them, and this is what I always say is like, can we just give it 30 to 45 days so that we can see kind of what shakes out, right? Like what's left if we take some of these things out and we stabilize our brain or we get, we're on the path to stabilization, what's shaken out? Like what, what's remaining that we still need to show up and address. And I'm wondering, you know, in your experience of, it sounds like working very similar in a very similar manner, you know, do you find a lot of, do you experience a lot of, you know, like this true anxiety, a lot of this internal alarm system saying something's not quite right here, or is it usually the other way? Is it usually a lot of this like kind of false signaling? I think a lot of people have plenty of both, especially young people. (laughs) And so, and I think For me, my process, similar to yours, I like to start with the false anxiety. To me, that's the low-hanging fruit. It's the quick wins. And honestly, it it muddies the waters. And so we need to identify and address the false anxiety in order to clear the air so that the true anxiety can present itself with this clarion note where we really are like, okay, that is what needs to be course-corrected. And so I start with false anxiety. I, in my book and with my practice, I just have this piece of paper, the false mood inventory. It's like, print this out, screenshot this, put it in your bag, put it on your refrigerator. It can cue you because in those moments when we're overwhelmed, things feel doom and gloom, we're spiraling. We have a little bit of tunnel vision. We, we don't have the presence of mind to be like, okay, my problems are valid. This is true. And perhaps I need a snack. Or my problems are valid. This is true. And I'm getting my period tomorrow. So I'm feeling just a little more raw, tender, irritable right now. Or I didn't sleep well the night before and so on and so forth. And I think it's so powerful and grounding to just have that reference to cue you, to remind you. Sometimes there's an actionable solution. Like, you know, your problems are valid and are you hungry? You can have a snack and you can feel better within 15 minutes. Sometimes it's not something you can fix in that moment, but it does take the charge out. So when you're like, I am feeling overwhelmed with everything in my life, I'm pretty sure everything is doom and gloom. And then you're like, oh, but I am hungover. I did have a few drinks last night in a way I don't typically do. Then it can just help you have a little bit of a broadened perspective. You can be like, well, maybe things aren't as doom and gloom as they feel right now. And I do think it's really important to... I said it a couple of times there. Our our problems are valid. Like false anxiety is not to say like, what are you complaining about? Like we have real problems. I remember I was in a false anxiety state this summer. I had gone to Europe where my on again, off again, love affair with coffee is on when I'm in Europe. And so (laughs) drinking cappuccinos, tolerating it great, which is a separate conversation around different tolerance of certain substances and depending on what soil you're standing on. And I do great with my trigger foods in Europe and I don't do great with them here. And so I got back and I was kind of slowly weaning myself off of coffee, but I'm in Colorado, we're at a country house with friends and I'm irritable and angry and snapping at my husband every day. And I'm just like, why is everything terrible? And (laughs) I was really not like myself. And my best friend said to me one day, she's like, Ellen, 
do you think it could be the coffee? And I remember just snapping at her like, no, everyone is being terrible. And I literally wrote a book about false moods and false anxiety. And here I am in one and unable to identify it. And when somebody points it out to you, you bristle because it feels like what they're saying is you're overreacting. And so it's important to recognize our stressors are real and we are less resilient in the face of them when our physiology is out of balance, when we're tipped into a stress response. And oftentimes that story that our brain tells us when we're in a false anxiety state is a retro justification. Like the problems were always there, but why we're concerned with them in that moment is our brain trying to make sense of what is first and foremost a physical sensation. We are triggered into a stress response and then our brain is like, oh yeah, something doesn't feel great at work. And that interpersonal dynamic from seventh grade is still irking me. And so we will narrate why we're in a stress response, but it's, it's our brain attempting to make meaning. I'm curious only because you mentioned it. Why do you think that when we go on vacation or we're in a different location that we may be able to manage our food addiction and triggers in a different way? Do you think it's like we're getting all these dopamine? There's much more socialization. There's much more like it feels, life feels more full and rather than when we're at home and these, you know, we're just using them to get out of boredom. I'm curious. I think it is such a both and, but the part that's controversial and and to me more interesting here is the and. So like what I mean is the typical justifications for why I can't tolerate gluten in the US. I get really symptomatic. My mom had celiac disease. Like I'm peri-celiac. It's it's ugly when I eat gluten in the US. I can be in France and just housing croissants all day long. No problem. Tummy as calm as it could possibly be daily bowel movements like a rock star, no problem. So the typical, you know, I'll say this to someone and they'll be like, well, you're on vacation, you're relaxed. And that's why. And I will be the first to admit, you know, I'm deep in the science of the gut brain connection and our state of mind and our level of the tone that our nervous system is in sympathetic or parasympathetic is absolutely relevant to the quality of our digestion, to how our immune system is going to react to something that's a potential antigen. That's all true. And the food is different. And we have to be in that and because it's really setting us up to fail in the United States. And so like I've done the experiment in my own body where I've been at work and stressed on foreign soil, tolerating food. And I've been at leisure, relaxed on American soil, say in the definition of paradise in Hawaii. And I can so much as look at a pita and I'm bloated. And so I've really played out this experiment many times in my own body. And it's not simply that you're relaxed explanation. We're all different. Celiac is celiac. I think you can't be a celiac and go to Italy and be like, ah, I can eat pasta again. I don't think it works that way. I think I'm just on the verge. But I think that we need to talk about the fact that the agribusiness is different. The soil is different. The pesticides are different. I think Roundup itself is a really significant difference. And Roundup with the active ingredient glyphosate, which we spray on our wheat crop, is a really interesting setting us up to have an inflammatory response to gluten in the US because it's like a one-two punch. You eat your gluten packaged in a pesticide that creates in genetically susceptible individuals intestinal permeability. So then we're leaking this partially digested gluten particles into our bloodstream, which is very provocative to our immune system. 
And then our immune system just says, well, that's gluten and it's other, it's not self and I'm going to attack it. And then that can attack our digestive tract lining. It can attack our thyroid. It, it just creates a whole immune storm in response to gluten. And we're in that deep in the US. And I think that we're just much less prone to that in places where Roundup is much more restricted in its use. It brings up such a, an interesting question for me then is, you know, so Clarissa and I are part of a team, an international team. So there's a team in the UK and there's a team in Sweden. And then we're the North American team in we're like auditing or we did several groups of auditing, you know, traditional substance use treatment and can we apply it to food addiction? And then what does it look like? And interestingly, our participants had the highest dropout rate. Yes. And so this is kind of bringing up a question for me. Like, could it be that our food is that different, that our participants were having different reactions starting from a different severity, acuity, even than maybe participants in the UK or even in Sweden And thinking about like, could that potentially, I mean, could that be a factor? I don't know. I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but I'm just curious to know your, your thoughts maybe. I will work hard to not be a both hand broken record, but I think that there's even, there are different stressors to be in North America. Like, I mean, I think you guys are in Canada. Is that right? I'm in Canada and Molly's in Montana. Gotcha. So like (laughs) in the U S we don't have healthcare. We don't have state-sponsored childcare. We don't have affordable education. It's like we have our own stressors that are going to add to the burden of why do we feel these holes, this sort of, why are we hungry ghosts? Why are we reaching? But I think that, and why are we stressed? Why do we need a hit of something? But I also think that it's not, so I feel like I have a theory for everything. And this is one, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts because I don't know how to explain this one. But when something is inflammatory to us, it seems to be more addictive. And so like, I don't think it's any accident that to my body, gluten and dairy, and particularly pasteurized dairy, actually, I'm sort of playing around in the raw dairy world right now. Those are very potent agents of inflammation in my body. And those are my drugs. So why, what is that? And it does seem a little bit like the body, some signals get crossed and I don't have a theory to explain it, but I do think it's a factor. And I think that might be why on this particularly inflammatory soil, do we have a harder time with sort of addiction recidivism? Yeah, that is fascinating. And I don't have an answer for that, but I do want to ruminate on it a little bit in order to like suss it out because it is very interesting, right? It's like those with the intolerances, those like lactose intolerant, that they tend to be the ones that want those foods the most, right? And it is very inflammatory for them. So it is interesting whether it's a physiological drive uh, for this or what is what's at, at work there. Yeah, I don't know, Molly. Did you have any thoughts? No, I mean, but I think you know, having it put to me in that perspective, I think I would have to agree, right? When we think about those things that our clients are, you know, feeling compulsion toward continued use, they are things that typically contain seed oils or gluten or dairy. And not, again, there are always exceptions to the rule. And I don't mean to paint with such broad brush strokes for sure. But, you know, when we think of the, the, the most severe cases that we encounter, 
you know, you're right. There's something to that, but I just think it's super interesting. You know, you kind of shedding some light on that, that I'm, cause we've been trying, I've been trying to figure out like, why has our group, what did we do different? Because we had this plan, right? We all had similar structure and topics that we covered and styles in which we covered them. And we had a much higher uh, dropout rate. So it's just, it just, it, it, ca- it causes me to be more curious and brings up more questions. So I just super appreciate your willingness to like play around with that idea okay. a little bit. I got a theory. Let's yeah. try it. Let's play it. Let's try it on for size. So I think seed oils is almost a separate conversation because when a food is also engineered to be hyper palatable, it's going to be made with all the worst ingredients and you know, then it's inflammatory in its own right. But I think what's really at play there are those Frankenfood flavor crystals that are trying to hit our bliss point and making our palate kind of need another bite of that chip. That's separate from, I think, the gluten and dairy. And I wonder if it has to do with the fact that these foods break down into an opiate-like substance, gluteomorphin and caseomorphin. And I wonder if given our Roundup pesticide, which is so ubiquitous in the United States, it's even, you know, the residues are in our tap water. So you can make bougie organic sourdough, but if you're using tap water, it's basically not organic sourdough. It's still with Roundup. And so, cause that's another experiment I've done on my body, polenti, imported flour. Well, I haven't yet made the bougie sourdough with imported water, <laughs> but basically I think that when Roundup is involved, we have intestinal permeability. Those of us with certain HLA types, there's genetic susceptibility factors here. But then this partially digested gluten and dairy components, gluteomorphin and caseomorphin are able to get into the bloodstream. They are lipophilic, so they can cross the blood-brain barrier. And I think they can act directly on opiate receptors. And it's not like we took morphine. It's like we took this baby, baby dose of morphine. And so we get the fuzzies and the sleepies afterward. And then we come down with, there's a come down, there's a withdrawal and you want more and your body knows it likes it. So I wonder if it's related to the fact that we have more leaky gut here. And if you have leaky gut in combination with opiate-like components of these foods, that's going to make this even more addicted in this context. Because you think about, right, the biggest or the, 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 yeah, like the highest risk factor we have, right, would be exposure. So this has been in our foods for how long, right? And it's, I mean, we're talking epigenetics here, right? Like an egg within your mother who is in gestation within her mother, right? I mean, that there have been these exposures for years before we are even ingesting actual food. Well, and I think that the real, to me, the interesting difference here is that, you know, maybe humans have been eating wheat products for something like 10,000 years. And I don't think it was an addictive drug until we started incorporating pesticides that give us leaky gut and uh, not to mention all the other flavor crystals involved with making these foods addictive. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I do just kind of want to switch gears here for a minute, just because we work in the field of addiction. I often catch myself saying, just ask for help. Easier said than done right? Our truth feels like the hardest thing to share, especially with the people that matter most to us. So why is it so hard for us to tell the truth? And what are some steps and strategies we can use to implement this in our lives? Yeah. So, I mean, I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, there's a lot that comes into my mind around this. And part of it is shame. And, you know, I I certainly felt like this was so shameful that I was doing this. And I didn't want the label of an eating disorder. I didn't want pity. I didn't want to admit it's a problem. 
But I think there is also a feeling of like, there is no solution. So like, what's the point of even trying? I didn't realize that I would be able to get out of this behavior. And then I think it also has to do with our emotion phobic culture. And that interestingly is part of what we have to heal as we work through any addictive behavior, but also the sort of eating disorder quality of it. I feel like it, it sometimes is how we numb and how we avoid feeling our feelings. That never fully 100% resonated with my experience, but it, there's something there to follow. There's a thread to pull. And for me, like I had to learn how to cry, <laughs> like really give myself permission to cry, have a big cry, have a full and complete cry. And that that was a much needed release that my body needed on a regular basis, that it's free therapy. I needed to kind of give myself permission to cry. I needed some venue for processing what was on my mind, processing the stressors and what I was going through. And when I have these things in place, I have much less need to turn to comfort food. So for me, it's not completely numbing. It's more like my body is calling out for some unmet need. And I was getting it all mixed up. And really the need was a good cry, a good cuddle, talking through my problems, feeling held in community in some way. And so I think that, and I just to kind of go a little further into that unmet need thing. Let me see if I can, this is another, like you guys are so advanced college seminar on this topic that I think about all the time that I never talk about these issues on podcasts. And so all of this is sort of like just, you know, thinking out loud a bit, but I've always harbored this view that for me at least, and for some of my patients, the addiction to dairy in particular related to a relationship with mom and really even my, that food was my drug of choice related to relationship with mom. And I'm not just talking about the classic, like, oh, you see your mom talking about like, oh, my thighs are fat. And, you know, it's not the handed down body image issues. I didn't really have a lot of that. It's more like, how much do I feel held? How much do I feel seen and witnessed and accepted and unconditionally loved? And there's no mom blame here. Like that's the last thing we need as a culture. We've got all too much mom blame. Like it's impossible to be a mom. So this isn't to blame moms. This is really to understand in the system where moms don't have sufficient support, where they're their own people without a way of getting their needs met. Sometimes they're not meeting the needs of their kids. And I think that there's nothing quite like the yearning to be back as a newborn baby in your mother's arms, breastfeeding. And that it's sustenance, it's deliciousness, it's an opiate, it's comfort, it's safety, it's love, all in one package. And when you're 23 years old and had a bad breakup and you're sad and you're broke and you're lonely and you're unmoored and you don't know how your life is gonna pan out, the next best thing to being back to being a newborn baby in your mother's arms breastfeeding is like tasty delight. It's like soft serve vanilla ice cream, (laughs) like looks like a boob. And I felt like part of what I was yearning for was to be back there, to feel cherished and adored and held by my mother. And I was seeking it in food. And so part of my process out, in addition to identifying that I was addicted to certain drug-like foods, was to really heal around that relationship. And, And part of that was in dynamic with my mom. And part of that was just my own internal process. And so I have no idea if this has anything to do with your original question. Like, why don't we ask for help? I think there are complex layers to what's happening in these moments. And we do need to give ourselves permission to chip away at each and every one of these dimensions. You know, and I kind of want to tie it back to this concept of true anxiety as well, you know? So 
when I think of anxiety, I think of it as my, like my internal alarm system, right? That, and that's kind of the way I describe it to my clients is I'm like, listen, we're all born with this part of our brain, right? And it's meant to scan for danger all the time. And when it is right. So when we get into that parasympathetic state, it's often like you're saying is, it is to me, at least an alarm that some need is going unmet, right? Like there's a need of safety maybe that isn't being met, right? There's a fear showing up or maybe there's a scarcity thing going on. Like, am I going to have food in my house to feed my kids or whatever it might be? And I'm wondering, like, does that then tie to like kind of what you're saying at all, as far as, you know, this unmet need and like going back to, to source essentially, right? Like going back to, to when the thing that was, you know, our higher power was parent and food was associated, right? And then we've got oxytocin, which is bonding those things together. I mean, am I making a total leap here or does that tie? I feel like, like Clarissa and I are both having a spiritual experience with this comment. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Clarissa. I think that that's it. You're going back to that moment where you actually, second best to being in the womb, you have all your needs met. And when you're that unmoored, lonely, sad, broken up with 23-year-old with acne and polycystic ovary syndrome, just me, it's like I had very few of my needs met. And I think that I was seeking the needs I really had. It was community. It was feeling heard and witnessed and understood. It was a sense of meaning and purpose. It was all these other things. And I, and I only really knew how to meet the food need of that package. And I think that we're in an interesting moment right now. A lot of us don't have our needs met. There's very real scarcity. And I think there's also some degree of manufactured scarcity mindset, which is a weird side product of the fact that fear sells. I call this the banality of fear. Basically that advertisers trying to make a buck, trying to sell us something we don't need, prey on our fear response constantly. Tell us we're broken. We're not whole. Something's going to go wrong if we don't buy their crap. And so we are inundated constantly with fear messaging. And so we even, even more so, even more than is valid, we feel that we're constantly activated into that unmet need scarcity mindset. And so I think part of how we meet our needs is identifying them, asking to get our needs met, figuring out where we and how we can get our needs met in our lives, how we can meet our own needs. But I think also putting up a force field energetically from all the barrage of messaging that's inappropriately, unnecessarily just piling on the feeling that we have unmet needs. Some are genuine. We do have a need for community. We do, I think, have a need to feel witnessed and understood. I don't think we have a need for like this like fifth order kind of security system to see if our baby is breathing in the crib. Like there's all this just praise on us, especially when we're most vulnerable. Yeah. And I don't even know how we can do it and get to that place to be able to identify our needs without going completely off the grid because it is impossible. We are inundated. And like, I, like, like I said, Molly and I just returned from being in the treatment center and I just felt like so whole Mm -hmm. after that, because we were off screens, we were just present with community. And I was like, oh, because I've been to treatment three times when I was recovering from alcohol. And I was like that. I love treatment. I did the, the world is shut off. I get to focus on myself, look after myself and oh, my needs are being met. But why is it that that's the only way our needs can get met? That's really sad and scary. We're in a weird funky moment with like late stage capitalism. And then also the fact that 
our world is designed around the automobile. And so we don't have at a human scale community and walkability and social density and all of those interactions that I think also help us. I mean, I do often think about how moving off the grid, homesteading, raising chickens and throwing our phones into the ocean would be a solution for a lot of things. Everything except the fact that I don't want to lose hot showers. So I haven't fully made peace with that aspect of modernity, like having to go. But I think that we really can be radical and intentional in how we design our lives. I've been working at it for a while. I'm like 10 years deep into how do I orient my life to be like treatment, but in daily life. And one thing we've done, and it's hard, it's hard to coordinate these things, but we don't live in a commune, but we live in quite a bit of community. And that's a high priority. And we do a lot of fancy footwork to make that possible. But like my my family of three, we have meals most nights with another family of three. So it's shared tasks and duties and it's community and it's it's that kind of feeling of fullness. And we also co-work together. Doesn't mean we don't scroll on our phones and pay taxes and struggle with mortgages and all these other things about real world but we're getting some of those fundamental needs met. And I do encourage people to take a step back and be really radical in how you're envisioning your life. And some of these things are not so high in the sky. Like we can, we just have to kind of coordinate and, and be intentional and build it in. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of what you said, you know, so often I talk to clients and they're like, ideally this, and I should be doing that. And I'm like, According to who, according to what, like, you know, it wasn't all that long ago, you know, evolutionarily speaking that we did not live in these like individual homes and apartments and that we, right. Like it was community. We packed up and moved together as a group to follow the food or based on the season or whatever it was, right. When we're speaking from that perspective, this is actually relatively new and our, I mean, like humanity has just, or maybe not humanity, but like our species, let's go with that. Our species has definitely evolved so quickly with the industrial revolution. And like you said, the vehicle, the light bulb, all of these things. And now we have, you know, phones that are popping up ads because they hear us talking. And it's like, like you said, like preying on our fears, like, oh, you need this baby monitor or you need this. Otherwise, things going to go wrong. And and the thing that you said is like this radical, like this, right? Like almost asking us to like rebel against what social norm says is correct and show up in this radical way and maybe take on some of these radical acts of self-love, putting down the phones, finding community, like you said, like pairing up with these other families. I mean, finding a way to establish relationships with others, with ourselves. And somehow that might play out with food or other substances. And I'm just wondering, like, can you speak more to that? Because I, that excites me. Is this like, I'm Molly means rebel. And I'm like, yeah, let's, <laughs> I'm going to embrace that. Yeah. That's so cool. So, I mean, I think, and sometimes we get ads targeted at us. That's like, I never spoke those words out loud. I just thought that. And then it advertised it to me on Instagram. How ooh, it's freaky. So I think that to me, there's this spectrum of ways that modern life is hard on, it's always an ancestral perspective. We evolved with communities about, you know, 100, 125, maybe 150 people. And so when I think it's hardwired in our DNA, that when we feel held in community, when we feel connected, we feel safe because on the proverbial savanna of evolution, we were not the strongest species. We were not the fastest species. We were the ones that figured out how to cooperate. And it's for this reason that when we feel held, we feel safe. 
And when we feel isolated, as we all do, disconnected, ostracized, even when we're voyeuristically watching a mob takedown of cancel culture on the internet, I think that on some level it activates that ostracism feeling in us. And in our DNA, we are hardwired to feel that on some level it's a matter of life or death because we feel alone on the savannah, like up against the wild. But I think on the other end of that spectrum is the fact that we do not have brains equipped to triage the problems of every corner of the world at once. We are equipped to triage the problems of 150 people. So when we are now aware of everything wrong everywhere in the world at all times, it overwhelms us and talk about sleep. I mean, the light bulb is the biggest factor for why we don't sleep, but also we doom scroll at night and we feel surrounded by danger. And that is no condition for the brain to surrender into sleep, understandably. So we just have to understand human evolution. Like if we're sort of tracking it across our zoom screen, it's like most of the zoom screen was under very different conditions. And then like a width of a piece of paper at the edge of the screen is Doritos and Instagram. So we're just, we are not at all equipped to handle these stimuli. And I think that the phone, it's exactly like food in this way where I I feel so awkward using this term. It's not like, you'll see, it's like the don't hate the player, hate the game. But like, I don't blame myself for being addicted to food. I really do blame the food that's engineered to be addictive. And I do not blame all of us for not having the willpower to stop scrolling and put our phones away. These are engineered in the attention economy to keep us rubbernecking, to keep us scrolling endlessly. There's no natural stopping cue. They prey on our fear response. They prey on the fact that we will rubberneck a controversy. The algorithm favors this. So in this attention economy, where our attention is the commodity that's being competed for, they have the, they know their neuroscience and their behavioral psychology. They're doing everything right. They get more clicks and more ad revenue, but our mental health is the collateral damage. And it's not our fault. It's not a lack of willpower. It's us interacting with a potently addictive substance. And so once again, like where do we find the abstinence parameters with the phone? And I, I don't necessarily have the answers to that. It's not as simple as gluten, dairy, sugar, and processed foods and nut butter. It's like, you know, it's how do you cue yourself to shut it down? How do you pull yourself to something more compelling? Yeah, that's definitely challenging. And I think it's also like you have to find a way to to just balance. But I think that's this elusive unicorn that no one can actually ride because it's there's just so much noise that gets in the way. And so I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on you did say in your book that you saw an eating disorder therapist and she kind or he I don't know if it who it was, but they helped you find recovery. And so in our world of food addiction, we are trying to definitely Molly and I are, our goal is to bring the world of eating disorders and food addiction together because there are so many components that are complementary, And yet these worlds are so far apart in some ways. And so we struggle with some colleagues who get very rigid in their you know, platforms of, you know, fruit makes you fat or fruit is a, you know, nature's candy and it irks my soul. (laughs) And then also in the eating disorder world, 
eat everything in moderation, intuitive eating, like, and so wait, where, do, how do we find the middle and bring these communities together so we can just help people heal their relationship with food? Because that is the goal. Yeah. So, I mean, I was a medical student at the time when I actually sought treatment and I was lucky. I had med student insurance. I had access to this hospital system. So I got to see someone. I count myself as one of the lucky ones. Like usually there's all these barriers, there's shame, there's insurance coverage, there's people not taking new patients, there's wait lists. It's so many hoops to jump through. I got through the hoops and I was face-to-face with a woman who I thought was lovely and really helpful, but not, it was a, it was a necessary, but not sufficient for me. And so what was helpful for me, most of all, it was actually not the writing down, the feeling every time I felt like I wanted binge actually wasn't useful for me. It was getting me out of that restriction binge cycle that I was in. So to normalize and to be told in that moment, eat three square meals a day and two snacks. I was kind of like, that will help me because that sounds really nice right now because I'm hungry. And so to normalize eating in that rhythmic way was powerful for me. And it, because I do think that a starving restricted brain or a starving brain and a brain that's telling itself, I need to restrict is a brain obsessed with food. And so I didn't realize how much I was perpetuating the binging by either not getting enough nutrients and also by just focusing on like, oh God, I just binged. Now I need to restrict that that was making me obsessed with food. So that was what was so helpful. But then when it was like, what should I eat? And it came down to everything in moderation, no bad foods. It led me astray. And I rode a very tenuous line of recovery because I'd be like eating my three square meals and two snacks. And then I'd have a bite of like an Entenmann's cookie and I'd be off to the races. And I had to identify for myself that certain foods were behaving as drugs and derailing my progress. So I had to add in the piece around abstaining from drug-like foods. And that always felt like so unorthodox. And I felt a little bit like I would bring this up and it would be treated as like, well, that's actually just your eating disorder relapsing in certain ways, right? It's an eating disorder mentality. So I had to really like have a coming to Jesus moment around that. And I was like, no, for me, it's not. This is not an eating disorder mentality. This is freedom. Because if I have these guardrails and these parameters, I eat I experienced satiety. I experienced hunger. I eat again. I experienced satiety. I was like, I am whole. And all I had to do was not, we curse. Yeah. <laughs> I just had to not fuck with gluten. Like it was that simple and I could be whole. And I wish that the woman who told me three square meals and two snacks at least could entertain that conversation because it did set me back for many months, if not years, to basically like that I had to believe that there were no foods off limits. And that if I thought any foods were off limits, that that was somehow backsliding into eating disorder mentality turned out to not be true in my body. Yeah. I think about, you know, because I had act, you know, we had been talking about acts of self-love and this radical, like radical acts of self-love and what better radical act of self-love than to say, listen, this is how my freedom is defined. It's actually oppressive to me to be told all foods in moderation, all foods fit for all people. That absolutely was not your, your truth. And when you stood in your truth, I can only imagine what that was like to go from what you had been living to what it must be like today for you. Yeah. And then Molly rebel, like anytime we stand in our truth against the sort of like 
um, solid, unanimous block of accepted consensus. What a radical act of self-love to witness ourselves standing there and pushing back when everyone agrees you're wrong. (laughs) And I actually think it's a really, I think that there is something really good about witnessing ourselves standing up and advocating for our truth in that way. I think it's powerful and can have ramifications in our eating disorder recovery. Yeah. It pertains to boundaries in other areas of our lives as well, because we have conditioning our whole lives that say you should tell people, yes, you should not disappoint people. If you protect your own energy and your needs, you're selfish. And that's the worst thing you could possibly be as a woman. And, you know, we still to this day have a lot of cultural conditioning that tells us to compromise our energetic needs and our truth. And it's not just like the old memo, it's still happening, even in like very mindful circles. And so wherever we can really understand our own truth and recognize our worthiness of getting our needs met, And even when the world tells you like, well, we don't really like that from you. We can, I think it's, you witness yourself doing that and it creates the conditions for you to actually behave from a place of more self-love in general. And I think it actually makes the world go around. So I want to be mindful of your time and- I want to talk for 10 hours. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, where can our listeners find you? So I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm at Ellen Vora MD. And if you want like the 250 page version of all of my musings on mental health and anxiety, it's my book, The Anatomy of Anxiety. And then I'll be working with groups starting sometime this winter. So if anyone wants to participate in that, my website, ellenvora.com, sign up for the mailing list. That's where I'll be announcing when enrollment is opening up. It's exciting. I know these hours always fly so fast and I feel like at least we've been able to like dip people's toes in the water, right? Like, oop, here's here's a little bit of Dr. Mora. If you really like what she has to say, go get her book. Absolutely. Go check out other podcasts because I, definitely you've been interviewed by others. I particularly loved your interview with the holistic psychologist, Nicole, Dr. Nicole LaPera. You know, so again, guys, she's out there and we'll definitely make sure to link all of those Instagram and the book. And before you go, we always have a signature question if you're willing, and we like to make it, you know, unique to you. So if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about, you know, whether it be gluten or dairy or even like food relationship, what might that be? So, I mean, on the one hand, it's so basic and it's not profound, right? I like to be like, here's the hot take, here's what's profound. In your circles where all your listeners already have their PhD in this, this is nothing new. But the truth is, I wish I could have told my 18-year-old self, like, these foods don't work for your body. The end. And so that would have helped me a lot. But I think the more nuanced and psycho-spiritual view on this for me is that I had to really name the delicate balance that we're playing with right now, which is that If we all lived in the shadow of an active volcano in Sicily and the agribusiness was a love-filled product and the food was real, this wouldn't be an issue. If we lived on Whole30 Island, this wouldn't be an issue. We live in, I live in the US, which is like the most absolutely morally corrupt food system. And it's, you know, devoid of micronutrients, actively inflammatory around every corner, engineered to be addictive. It's a ground to be in a relationship with food in this way. I think for me, I had to name that balance, which is that I need to use food to nourish myself, which is an act of love. It's caring for ourselves. I need to do that without creating inflammation in my body. And I need to do this whole process with an attitude of ease and pleasure and with an eye towards affordability and convenience and sharing in amazing experiences with the people I love. 
and not from a place of fearing food, feeling like my body's fragile or becoming obsessive, letting meal prep become a part-time job. And I think we need to name that that is a delicate balance that we are working with in the modern food landscape. And once we've named that and identified it, I think we can go forward. And to simplify that whole message, every act of how we feed ourselves should be the act of radical self-love, which does not tell us what we should eat. Because in one moment, the act of radical self-love is, you know, the plate of like, so confusing because what I consider healthy is like maybe what somebody else considers unhealthy, but like sometimes the act of radical self-love is the meat and potatoes. And sometimes the act of radical self-love is the gelato in Italy and everything in between. And so it doesn't tell you what is the right food. It tells you what's the right mentality. You're about to eat something and you ask yourself, why am I eating this? Because I love myself. Go forth. Oh, that's beautiful. I can't, I can't even talk. Thank you, Ellen, uh, yes, so much so for much. being here. That was, uh, I just, my, my whole soul is lifted and I know our audience feels the same way. This is not just an honor. It's a thrill. I feel like it's really nice to talk with people there. You really speak the same language about something so tender and near and dear to our hearts. Thank you guys. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.